0: is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory.
1: G'day there, my name's Matt Brand, welcome to the program. There are some farmers in the top end of the Northern Territory cashing in this week with okra prices hitting record highs in the Sydney markets.
2: Yeah, we've got a real, real price hike I've never seen before. We're selling about $13, $14, $14 a kilo for okra.
1: Yeah, that's almost double the normal price. I'll tell you more about the good times for okra growers in just a moment. What's the federal government's plan to ease the petrol pump pain for Aussie drivers? And will it cut the fuel excise? In a moment here on the Country Hour, you'll hear from Minister Dan Tian. And you'll also today get to meet one of the TikTok stars of the Northern Territory. She's also the cook on Newcastle Waters Station.
0: Hi, my name's Ellie, and I live and work on a castle station in the NT. Today, I'm introducing you to Rochelle. Rochelle does heaps of jobs around the station, like shoeing horses, cleaning troughs and unloading trucks. But today, I spent the day with her so she could show me how she does the feeding.
1: Yeah, the good times on Newcastle Waters being shared via TikTok. To people around the world, all these stories and plenty more are coming up today on The Country Hour. I hope you can stick around. We are broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC, streaming online, and g'day there if you are tuning in via our podcast. Now, plans to build the world's largest solar farm right here in the Northern Territory has received a serious funding boost, thanks largely to two of Australia's richest men. Billionaires Andrew Forrest and Mike Cannon-Brooks have helped the company Sun Cable to raise 210 million dollars which will go towards its Australia Asia powerlink project which is all about sending solar energy from the territory to customers in Singapore. David Griffin is the chief executive of Sun Cable. Uh, can you tell us what the company plans to do with 210 million dollars?
3: Uh sure I absolutely can. Uh, first of all I guess we you know we are just really excited about this. It's it's a um, it's an amazing amount of capital that, that brings us just so many opportunities to accelerate the development of our broader portfolio of projects. Clearly, clearly our focus remains the Australia Asia Power Link and that's what the bulk of these funds will uh, be dedicated towards supporting. Um, but it does give us that opportunity to uh, now accelerate development of. Uh, similar types of projects. We've been working on the Australia Asia Powering for some years now, and the, uh, the knowledge that we've gained out of developing a system like this where we're, you know, we're generating uh, dispatchable zero emissions electricity uh, and then transmitting that over extreme distances, That's all pretty unique IP and Australia Asia Power Link was always going to be a first of a kind but also the first of many Um, and these funds help us to uh, start realising those subsequent uh, projects as well.
1: Right, so Um, when we look at the map of Australia, does Sun Cable have its eye on other areas for similar projects?
3: What I can say is that... um, Australia is really privileged in that we have an unbelievable uh, solar resource. Uh, you know, we, we the country receives 58 million petajoules of solar energy every year. And in 2020, we converted 400 petajoules to electricity. So, yeah, there is a huge um, uh, resource there available for, for this purpose. Um, so
1: I'm going to take that as a yes. You are looking at other potential projects on the map. <laughs>
3: It's it, look, it, it, yeah, Australia, it's a, a home market and uh, a lot of fantastic opportunities here, not just from the generation side, but also um, large and growing loads that uh, are responding to the, the, the global energy transition. So, yeah, clearly there's great opportunities here.
1: In terms of an investment, what does Mike Cannon-Brooks and Andrew Forrest get from this?
3: Well, they're... Um, Everyone's aware that they've got a lot of interest in this broader area of um, the energy transition. uh, Multiple investments in uh, in other areas uh, related to that, and I think it. I don't like to talk for other people, but I think it's fair to say that in both cases, they are very keen they to to have an impact. You know, have a positive impact and make a difference. Uh, and use the resources they've got to, uh, to make that happen as fast as possible. So um, we're just really uh, privileged, I guess, to have um, those individuals supporting us so stridently uh, and backing our vision. Um, and that's, that's an important aspect of this particular capital raise. It's the second time they've invested in Sun Cable, along with all of our other shareholders. So this entire capital raise, uh, apart from some new employees, uh, some employees investing for the first time, uh, was backed by all of our existing shareholders. So um, that's a real vote of confidence in the progress that we've made.
1: Are you willing to say how much of, of their money, Mike Cannon-Brooks and Andrew Forrest, money, makes up that $210 million?
3: Uh, I can say that they took up uh, everything that they were entitled to. So, again, a really strong vote of confidence. So we're really, really pleased with that.
1: Does that mean half, three quarters? I've got no idea. Uh, I, I, yeah,
3: we don't, we don't go into the details. Okay. Like that, no.
1: If you're just tuning in, this is the Country Hour, and we are speaking to David Griffin, who is the chief executive of Sun Cable. This is the company that wants to build the world's largest solar farm right here in the Northern Territory. So, looking at this proposed solar farm on Power Creek Station near Elliot, near Newcastle Waters, what's planned there this year? You've got a bit of money in the bank. What's planned?
3: Sure. So uh, we, yeah, we're continuing to gather data on our, the baseline down there. So um, that includes uh, understanding the solar resource that's available there. Um, you can never have enough uh, data on that, so we'll be, we'll be continuing to collect that uh, in perpetuity. We're also undertaking a series of, an, of um, experiments at the site. Because this is a multi-gigawatt scale project, it gives us the opportunity to improve the efficiency of, uh, of the solar farm and its interaction with the battery storage uh, capacity um, It there are an enormous number of opportunities to improve the overall efficiency of a system like this and to reduce the cost uh, for, for most uh, solar farms in the world they're just not big enough to be able to spend the time and the resources to prove um, up some of these hypotheses that we have in terms of efficiency gains um, but we have those resources so we we are conducting a lot of experiments uh, to quantify um, exactly how that system will perform um, when we uh, implement some of our unique design characteristics to it. So we're pretty excited about that. That's all. The, the data from those experiments is already rolling in. Ooh,
1: will we see a solar panel set up on Power Creek this year?
3: Uh, there are some experimental. Uh, you know, it's very, very small, uh, yep. you know, a handful down there at the moment. Um, but uh, no, there won't be uh, in terms of um, deploying the actual solar farm. No, that's uh, that's a while away yet. Uh, we're on track to achieve financial close at the end of 2023. Uh, So construction uh, will start after that time. Okay.
1: Uh, Just finally, a couple of quick questions from our audience. Every time you're on the program, David, it always generates lots of interest. Uh, A couple of questions we always get. What happens if a hailstorm goes over your operation?
3: Uh, Well, I imagine it will, and it will happen many times. Um, Solar panels are, are incredibly tough. They are designed to withstand that type of impact. Um, that 's uh part of the course, so we understand they 're going to be exposed to that that threat the uh, technologies designed to uh, absorb those impacts, and just more broadly, I guess we always include uh, an element of conservatism in our assumptions uh for the operation of all of the equipment across the the uh, the system so yeah, we we know we're aware of that that issue. Um, the technology is designed to, to deal with it, and,
1: right? Yeah, and probably. the other one is why not turn this farm into the energy for Australia? Why send it to Singapore?
3: Well, uh, just to remind everyone, of course we are uh, supplying 800 megawatts of the capacity of the solar farm to Darwin. Mm. Uh, but so but
1: why not, I guess, go into the east coast? The
3: the demand for electricity. In Singapore and, in, and indeed more broadly uh, across Southeast Asia, um, is extremely high. Their costs, the cost, the cost of electricity uh, throughout Southeast Asia, are extremely high. So, the East Coast of, of Australia has some of the cheapest electricity in the world, um, and uh, Southeast Asia is is not there. So, it's a great opportunity to uh, supply. Uh, a high price market and help to, to push those prices down. Um,
1: well, yeah, the, I guess we're, we're a farming show. makes sense. You're going where the demand is, is greatest and, and probably the dollars are
3: better. Yeah, fundamentally. Hmm. Um, that, that's right. That's right. Now, you know, opportunities change. And um, as we develop a project to this scale, we are, as I referred to before, we are going to be driving down costs. Um, and that just creates opportunities to pen- penetrate ever more markets.
1: Thanks for your time today.
3: I uh, appreciate it. No worries. Thanks, mate. Uh, g'day, this is Vin Yuen from TV Farms in Sydney Markets, and you're listening to the Country Hour.
1: Now, Northern Territory okra farmers they normally harvest the small green fruit during the dry season. But a handful of growers in Darwin's rural area are picking okra right now. They're selling them to the Sydney markets and they're making some seriously good money. I spoke this morning with Kevin True from the Sydney markets who said okra was now fetching up to $14 a kilo, which he says is a record price.
2: Yeah, um, NT uh, Darwin's been seeing a bit of okra the last couple of weeks. I think the people who uh, took the risk and growing this time of year are getting rewarded right now. Uh, this time of year, we rely on a lot of uh, podges from uh, Queensland and uh, local New South Wales, and most of the people who are um, in flood-prone areas and even yeah the lowlands have yeah been affected by a lot of uh, water and getting a lot of uh, damaged crop and um, yeah just uh, unre- un un. And, uh, uncertain times and just the weather's just been no good for anything at all so the people who are benefiting from this uh, price hike is the Dar- uh, people from darwin who's grown okra and the people who are a bit more on higher land uh in queensland who are able to still pick and send and yeah we've got a real real price hike i've never seen before we're selling about 13 14 a kilo for okra
1: and you've never seen the price that high for Acre?
2: Never, never, ever I've seen this high. Once maybe we'll get like a one, two week where, you know, there's there's just a funny week where there's a, a slight shortage, but not up to this price. We've seen about $12, the highest I've seen. What would the but, price normally be this time of year? Oh, this time of year, it's, it's relatively cheap. I'd say about an $8 average. Wow. So we're almost doubling what, I, what we're going to get right now.
1: How uncommon is it to be getting okra from the Northern Territory in March, in the wet season?
2: Look, it's the people who are willing to try and take the risk. This time of year, it's um, obviously it's not the right time of year to grow okra because of the weather, but the people who wanted to start the season early and put in the risk, they don't really grow a big crop. They do a little crop, kind of just a trial and error, I guess. And the ones who... Doing it right now, uh, yeah, benefiting. And to be su- uh, surprisingly, that's not too bad. I was, you know, a bit skeptical, but when he came and I had a look at it, yeah, I-, I was pretty amazed at how the quality is.
1: And so, who's buying Okra at the moment?
2: Everyone. Yep. Uh, the Lebanese and the Indian community, uh, the majority of buyers, and also the Asians. But at the moment, uh, yeah, the-, the people who uh, are paying are actually the Indians and Lebanese. So even
1: at that price, you're able to move it easy?
2: Yeah. Yeah, people are still buying it. um, I think it's a very, very common dish in the Lebanese and Indian community where they use it uh, quite often.
1: So what are you hearing from your suppliers in those flood-affected areas? How long might it take them to get back up and running?
2: Yeah, it will be a couple of months. Um, I've got one grower who's uh, lost about 80% of their crop. And, uh, yeah, he just called me last Friday saying, um, you know, he's got probably about eight to ten boxes coming down my way in the next couple of days when he was descending about 500 kilos. Now he's down to about, yeah, 100. So he's lost, yeah, he's lost quite a bit. And he's going to have to replant a lot of his uh, fields. And it's going to be – he might not even make it because uh, by the time, you know, he, he plants, it's going to be uh, winter soon. So, he, yeah, a lot of people up in Queensland uh, might might not replant because it's just not worth the while because by the time, you know, winter comes along, the ochre is just going to grow too slow for them. So, yeah, we might just have a real tough, you know, couple of months until uh, Darwin starts kicking off.
1: It must be the, the, the biggest news story there at the markets, is it, the floods?
2: Yeah, a lot of people are getting uh, stock out of um, Melbourne and South Australia. So yeah, Sydney and Queensland. Uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of produce is gone. So now um, there's a big struggle for vegetables, and a lot of people are getting interstate from Queensland and South Australia. And uh, yeah, demand is very high for most most lines. Hey, thanks for
1: your time today, Kevin. Appreciate it.
2: Not a problem, Matt. Thank you very much.
1: That is Kevin True from Southern Asia Produce in the Sydney markets where okra is making big money, up to $14 a kilogram. And he says normally the price sits at around $8 a kilo at this time of the year. According to the AgriFutures Australia website, Australia on average produces around 2,000 tonnes of okra each year, and most of that comes from the Northern Territory. There is a little bit of production in the south-east corner of Queensland, but as we've just heard there from Kevin, unfortunately for a lot of those growers, they have been affected by those floods. And at the same time, a few growers in the Northern Territory have managed to produce a crop at this time of the year and are now cashing in.
4: There's a lot we can do to help people affected by the floods in Queensland and New South Wales, but donations that have not been requested can actually hinder recovery efforts. To find out how you can really help, go to ABC Gives. There you'll find links to trusted organisations that know how to match your good intentions with the outcomes needed on the ground. ABC Gives. ABC Radio is your emergency broadcaster.
1: We'll be speaking to the Weather Bureau at 5 past 1 to get the latest weather details. And as always, if you have a question for the Bureau, send it through via our text 0487991057. Or we've got a, a couple of here, including one from Carl. It says, Matt, when you get to talk to the Bureau today, can you ask them if they can explain the explosive thunder? At about 10 o'clock last night, there were five explosive booms in a row But no ordinary thunder rumbles as such here at Humpty Doo. It scared the heck out of me, says Carl in the Doo. That was a doozy of a storm system, wasn't it? The lights went out at the Brand household. I don't know how long the power was out, but we were left in the dark there for quite some time. It was a big storm, and Carl reckons the booms were not normal. There's a question we can put to the Bureau at five past one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, g'day, it's Greg Owens here, uh, recently retired from NT Farmers, but still hoping to be a big part of our farming community in the north, and you're listening to the NT Country Hour. That text number again, if you have a question for the Weather Bureau, is 0487 Okay, the Australian Transport Safety Bureau has released a safety advisory notice to encourage all pilots conducting low-level operations to wear a properly fitted and maintained flight helmet. This notice is targeted at operations like heli-mustering and aerial spraying. Hugo Ricard-Bell spoke to ATSB Director Stuart Godley about the accident that has triggered this safety notice.
5: The accident that uh, sparked all this was uh, um, back in July 2020 where a, a Robertson 44 helicopter was spraying along the fence line uh, at a property um, near Hay, New South Wales. So the spraying is, is quite a common activity. Um, it's been done at about two and a half to five metres above the ground, so you know, very close to hazards, obviously. Uh, in this particular case, uh, the pilot had been spraying uh, most of the day, and, and it was on, on his fifth run uh, when um, he had to approach some trees, and so he turned off the sprayer, uh, climbed over those trees, and then um, descended back, uh, most likely to commence, recommence spraying when he hit a single wire, that's like a, a power line wire that was um, across the paddock. Um, those wires are, are notoriously very hard to see, probably almost impossible to see, unless the poles are sticking out. In this case, you know, we, we threw, uh, flew some drones um, along the flight path, and you could see that the wire was impossible to see. So uh, after the helicopter hit, hit the wire, there was the, the one of the skids collect, uh, collected the wire, and it collided with terrain, um, and then, um, and you know some some meters uh, forward of of the wire. What
2: happened to the um, pilot and, and the chopper?
5: So following the wire strike, the, the uh, helicopter impacted the ground quite heavily. The, uh, it, it landed on, on its left side. Uh, the, the pilot uh, was wearing a, a shoulder-sash uh, seatbelt, so similar to one that you'd wear in your car, and, and that didn't restrain him um, very well, so he'd come out of that during the accident so he can sequence, uh, and hit his head on the interior of, of, the, uh, of the helicopter. So in, in this particular case, uh, his helmet also didn't actually stay on his head. So it actually came off his head um, sometime during that accident sequence, probably after the, the, the first impact. Um, and unfortunately, the, the pilot sustained uh, fatal injury. So why, why isn't it just mandatory, I guess, to wear a helmet? So this, so this one was, it was a spraying accident, but I, um, like aerial application, but I think mustering is, is equally um, you know, applicable. Um, the the civil aviation safety authority doesn't um, doesn 't mandate it um, but many operators do uh, and that's you know to care for their employees uh, but of course we we also have operators out there flying uh, privately uh, for themselves um, you know mustering on their own property etc um, but we do have many of the the um, federal and state workplace and healthy workplace and health regulations and, and laws do do mandate them because it because you know it's that safe um, workplace idea there. So, Stuart, uh, can you give me an example of where helmet has um, saved the life of a a pilot in a serious um, accident? Yeah, so in in, um, April 2020, we had a a Bell helicopter um, that was being operated on a passenger charter flight uh, in Queensland, a place called Banks Peak on on Moa Island. And in that case, um, during the landing, the the tail rotor hit some vegetation and and the... uh, the helicopter um, rapidly rotated to the right, colliding with terrain and being destroyed. Um, And and while the the passengers um, received some serious injuries, the the pilot only received uh, minor injuries, and
1: and a lot of that was put down to the fact that the pilot was wearing a helmet. That's Stuart Godley, who is the director at the Australian Transport Safety Bureau, the ATSB, speaking there to Hugo Ricard-Bell.
4: Yo, good afternoon. My name is Patrick White, my name Kanbil Pil. I'm born and raised in Nulunbo. I work as a head ranger for Sea Country program. And you're listening to Country Hour. Yo tapir.
1: Matt Brown with you this afternoon. Tell me, are you on the social media platform known as TikTok? I'm not. Dan, are you a TikToker? Nope. Over 1 billion people are though. And here in the Northern Territory, we've got some TikTok stars. One of them calls Newcastle Waters Cattle Station home.
0: Hi, my name's Ellie and I live and work on a castle station in the NT. Today, I'm introducing you to Rochelle. Rochelle does heaps of jobs around the station, like shoeing horses, cleaning troughs and unloading trucks.
1: But today I spent the day with her so she could show me how she does the feeding. Yeah, Ellie, the TikTok star at Newcastle Waters. You'll get to meet her and her story before 1.30 today on The Country Hour. And in a moment we'll also talk about fuel. Is the federal government going to cut the fuel excise? Minister Dan Tehan on your radio in just a moment, but first let's go to the weather bureau. Billy Lynch is there this afternoon. Billy, are you on TikTok? <laughs> Certainly not. <laughs> no. Certainly not. Ooh.
6: <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't even know what what makes it unique. What, what separates it from the other social media? Yeah. Things. Why is it got over a billion people? Yeah, that's it's amazing. Well, One billion.
1: Yeah. That's, It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's what, it's what all the kids are doing (laughs) and, and, (laughs) and not just the kids. No, no, yeah. I mean, yeah, I just, I just, I'm on Twitter. I I signed up to that years ago, mostly because the ABC were like, you should, you need to get onto this. So I was like, okay. And I've ignored Instagram. I've ignored so many of them over the years. I just feel like you can't, you can't just keep signing up to all of them. Can you? I'm, some people probably do, but I'm, I'm like you. I'd would just... overtake your life? I would think. Yeah, keep it simple. But I maybe think. I'm, maybe I'm showing my age a little bit there. <laughs> I remember doing sto- I remember doing stories for the Country Hour, uh, where we the intro would say, you know, uh, we spoke to Billy Lynch, who has started a page on a social media platform known as Facebook. Like I remember intro. Like we had to explain what Facebook was. <laughs> um, and, yeah. well, now TikTok, yeah. I, we've perhaps got listeners scratching their heads, wondering what on earth we're even talking about. Cause it's, Possibly. It's fairly I, new, but by golly, it's it's risen in stardom. Yeah,
6: but I don't think it's an age thing. Like, yeah, I know some people well into their 60s that, that love all the different social media stuff, so... The TikToking at 60? Uh, not
1: the TikToking, but okay. uh, all the other ones. Yeah, yeah, getting amongst it all. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, weather. Just a moment ago, the Bureau has put out a severe thunderstorm warning for the Lasseter. What can you tell us about that?
6: Yeah, so it's for the far southwest Lasseter. Um, so it's even south of Docker River and Yulara at this stage. But we've got a bit uh, more of a humid air mass across the, the southwest of the Territory today. So just seeing a few thunderstorms uh, around Giles and, and near the, the WA border push into the NT could produce some damaging wind gusts and that thunderstorm warning it could push a little further north and east um potentially as far north as Wataka and Curtain Springs later this afternoon.
1: Okay how how far east could the moisture extend?
6: Um not going to extend into the Simpson so okay. um I think you know, Calgary may be a slight chance, but Fink Alice Springs, no chance of seeing any rain from that today.
1: Uh, looking at top-end radars, and we actually got a text from, it was from Dave in Palmerston saying, wow, look at the Gove and Warrawee radars. Will we be getting anything out of that system over the next few days? And yes, there's a lot of blue to the north, isn't there?
6: There is, yeah. It's one of the features of the, the weather this week. Um, so firstly, just a quick explanation of what's behind it. Um, there's a trough and potentially a weak low trying to develop in the fur Sea um, to the north of Manangrida there. So that is um, what's responsible for the, the enhanced rainfall. Um, that... Where the system is going to track westwards. Um, so, probably passing to the north of the Tiwi Islands during Wednesday and then moving away from us. So, yeah, look, it could um, help enhance the, the rainfall, like right across the north coast. That is what we're expecting, um, across the north coast of the Tiwi Islands. Um, yeah, whether it gets down to Darwin or not, still not entirely certain, but. Mm, okay. Basically, yeah, just we're expecting a bit more rainfall across the
1: north coast for the next couple of days. Uh, Another question here from Carl, who feels the thunder was a bit unusual last night at around 10 o'clock. Five explosive booms in a row, he says, but no ordinary thunder rumble. Scared the heck out of me here in the dew. Anything unusual, according to the Bureau? (laughs) I can only speak from personal
6: experience. Yeah, there was some definitely um, some interesting rumbles of thunder which got my windows rattling as well. So I know what they're talking about. Um, but <laughs> in terms of giving a scientific explanation, <laughs> um, I'm not a lightning expert. I think it's a bit of a complex area of science it, and it's not familiar. It me was now,
1: quite so. a uh, line of storms last night, wasn't it?
6: It was a ripper, yeah. It was a real classic top-end squall line that went through. Um, yeah, it's kind of what you... Well, it's it's what I enjoy living about.
1: Living in the top end is getting those thunderstorms. Yeah. Uh, another uh, question from someone, or, or they're making a point here. It says, Matt, Eastley wins. Isn't that a sign of the dry season? Surely not, Billy Lynch. We've still got a bit of wet <laughs> season to go, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So...
6: I guess the dry season, yeah, we do think of, yeah, the easterlies or the southeasterlies um, and the, the monsoon season, the westerlies or, or the wet season. But this situation is wet season easterlies. So it's coming from the Coral Sea. So it's it's laden with moisture. Uh, it's not bringing any dry air. And actually, so um, we often talk about the MJO, um, mm-hmm. Which is one of the tropical waves, but there 's you know you 're probably aware there 's a few others that sometimes we talk about, so one of those ones responsible for all that rain to our north at the moment is Rosby wave the Rosby wave, yes, I remember this one, yep, yeah, so it 's back, so that 's in our region at the moment, and one of its characteristics is enhancing the easterly winds
1: uh-huh. so that 's what 's going on this week. The Rosby wave is in town. The week ahead for Central Australia and the Barkley, What's the forecast?
6: Well, with the temperatures, it's it's hot. Um, so temperatures in the sort of high thirties, low forties through the Barkley and the Tanami, um, and then extending down into the Alice Springs region. You know, we're looking at you know four to five degrees above average. So quite warm, um, without getting the the really hot, you know, mid forties it's um, due to some northerly winds, and we've got a series of troughs that will be moving across the south of the Territory this week. So, yeah, the first one today is bringing those storms to the Lasseter district. Um, some of that moisture might hang around that southwest corner tomorrow for a few more showers, and then a more significant trough will come through Wednesday and Thursday. Um, so we're expecting the shower and thunderstorm activity to extend southwards through the Barclay. Um, potentially even down to the Alice Springs region by Thursday. So, yeah, a bit more of an unsettled week this week through the southern half of the Territory with some showers and storms around.
1: Okay, anything else we need to be aware of? I guess just across the top end
6: with those those easterlies, um, potential for more gusty squall lines um, throughout the week as well.
1: Yeah. All right, then, let you be. Thanks so much for your time. Yep, thanks Matt. Uh, Billy Lynch there at the Weather Bureau. Just looking at some of the rainfall figures up to 9 o'clock this morning. Darwin River Dam has received 31 millimetres. Dum and Miri, 17 millimetres in the gauge. Channel point 13. Point Fawcett has recorded 32 millimetres. Meningrida Airport, 44. Gove Airports had 28 millimetres for the 24 hour period. Owen Pelly Airport, 26. And in the roper MacArthur district, a few sprinkles out that way, Borralula Airport recorded 21 mm and the Merlin Mines had six. Autumn in the garden, prime time to be sowing
5: veggies and giving your patch an overhaul. The April issue of ABC Gardening Australia magazine brings you expert advice for growing garlic, carrots, button mushrooms and leafy greens. Learn how to design a potager and which flowers are great to dot among the veggies. And don't miss Sophie's new series on starting a garden from scratch. Gardening Australia magazine, available from newsagents and abcmagazines.com.au.
1: It is a quarter past one, and you are tuned into the country hour. Now, the federal government is facing calls from within its own ranks to consider reducing the fuel excise to save motorists at the Bowser. The fuel excise is a flat tax placed on fuel, currently sits at just over $0.44 per litre, which the government argues pays for road infrastructure and other key services. Trade Minister Dan Tehan says reducing the excise is being considered.
4: An excise is basically a a tax or a charge on on fuel uh, which goes into consolidated revenue and uh, what uh, people are suggesting, and, and the government is obviously uh, listening to the feedback, is that uh, it would be very good if there, something could be done uh, around the excise at the moment, given the price we're seeing uh, of oil uh, as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine.
7: How does that look? Is it going to be a temporary freeze on the excise until until the situation calms down a little bit, or are we looking at a reduced excise?
4: Uh, well obviously i'm not going to go into the deliberations in the lead up to the budget, uh, but obviously uh, members of parliament are out and about they understand uh, what the impact of the rise in the oil price is having on agriculture and on especially on regional and rural communities, and taking all that feedback and and looking at what those options might be.
7: You mentioned the budget there, Minister. We are coming very close to an election now, obviously this budget is uh Key point before we hit the ballot boxes. These decisions are getting made now, though, aren't they?
4: Uh, obviously, there are deliberations being undertaken as we speak, as we frame uh, this year's budget. Absolutely, and uh, we're uh, making sure that we're out consulting, looking at all the various policy options, and framing this budget to address cost of living, uh, but also to ensure that our businesses, especially in regional and rural Australia, um, remained efficient, remain profitable, and that we're doing what we can to support them.
7: On the cost of living, there has been discussions about potential rises in basic goods such as food and other essentials due to this transport cost. Is that something that you see potentially happening?
4: Well, ultimately, um, the price of oil does have a flow-on effect through the economy, and that's why we're looking at, at the options to see what we can do to deal and manage with that.
7: So the money that is collected in the fuel excise, what kind of services does that offer Australians?
4: Well, that goes into uh, various things, whether it be for for, for record spending on aged care, record spending on education, on health, on infrastructure, roads. uh, It goes right across the board.
7: So is there potentially uh, an issue here where, say, we do have a freeze or a reduction in the excise in the short term, actually having a long-term disadvantage in the budget?
4: Uh, Look, all those things obviously have to be taken into consideration. Uh, Obviously, we want to make sure that we've got profitable businesses uh, that will pay tax and and obviously provide revenue into the budget. So all these things we take advice from Treasury and Finance on, but ultimately what we want to be doing is putting the policies in place that grow the economy. And by growing the economy, you make sure that you can keep uh, your budget on a sustainable footing.
7: We've seen various industries throughout the last two years needing assistance from the government to continue working. Do you see that maybe the transport industry could potentially be the next one that needs a bit of help?
4: Oh, look, we're obviously always working very closely with the transport industry What to do what we can to make it as efficient and as effective as we possibly can, including by putting record funding into roads. And everyone who lives in regional and rural Australia knows that roads are incredibly important, not only for our transport industries, but for everyone as they go about their way of life.
1: That's Trade Minister Dan Tien speaking there to Jane McNaughton. As we heard on the Country Hour last week, diesel's gone beyond $3 a litre for some of our remote communities, including $3.29 a litre in Remengining. This morning on ABC Radio, a very good question was asked about what impact the high fuel prices might have on regional tourism and if grey nomads might balk at these prices. Do they really want to travel from one end of the continent to the other with these sorts of fuel prices? Well, this question was put to Cindy Goff. She is the editor of the Grey Nomad Times. This was her response.
8: Well, I think it will have some impact, no doubt about it, because it, the prices are just so um, unpredictable. And as we've seen them surge, they could surge even more. So that will have some impact on people thinking about how far can they travel. But having said that, with all of the um, issues with, you know, being able to cross state borders, with lockdowns, with COVID, people are so keen to get out there that i think that you know they'll they'll still go um because you know if if all of this covid has taught us nothing else it's that it's important to seize the moment and travel when you can so um i think we'll still see grey nomads will come up to the territory there's no doubt that it's one of the big bucket list things to do on the big lap so i think they'll still come they might come more slowly and there might be a few less, but definitely um, I think it will still be on most people's agenda.
3: Are you hearing anything right. yet
4: about the availability of Winnebago's, the availability of caravans or camper vans
3: that, you know, people, they, they just can't get them?
8: Well, I think that is an issue, <clears throat> pardon me, for some, for some people. And, you know, I've had... Um, feedback on the forum, on our our Gray Numbers forum, that um, people are waiting uh, years for their orders to come through on factories because there's so much high demand. But having said that, I do think that it's possible over the coming year or so as international travel opens up, uh, some of the people who've bought caravans might think, well, you know, maybe this isn't for me long term. Perhaps it's better if I Uh, sell my caravan and and just, um, you know, go back to my Bali holidays. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll just have to sort of wait and see what happens. Um, I think at this stage, the people who do have caravans are definitely keen to get out there and and use them and and travel in them. So um, I think there's going to be a, a, a lot, it's going to be a busy season this year, despite the fuel prices.
1: That is Cindy Goff on ABC Radio this morning. She is the editor of the Grey Nomad Times, which I have since learnt is a free fortnightly e-newsletter with all the latest goths for Grey Nomads. The Grey Nomad Times, there you go, 22 past one here on the Country Hour. We're going from Grey Nomads to TikTokers. What a Country Hour we've got today, ho. Now, I've been reliably informed... That this song became famous and even won some country music awards care of the TikTok platform. So let's have a little bit of little Nas X and then we'll meet one of the territorians making it big on TikTok. Oh dear, 25 past one on the Country Hour. Now, when Elliot Dayborn moved from England to Australia for a holiday, she never imagined that she'd end up in the middle of the Territory on a massive cattle station serving 40 people three meals a day. But there she is. She's been the cook at Newcastle Water Station now for two and a half years and shares her experiences on TikTok, where she has quickly amassed a large following.
0: Hi, my name's Ellie. I live and work on a cattle station in the Northern Territory of Australia. Come to work with me for the day as a station cook. My day starts about five o'clock at the moment, which is a little bit later than in the videos, I originally thought it would just maybe interest a few people, but it seems like a lot of people in Australia who maybe haven't been up to this part of the country uh, always are always really enthusiastic to learn. So I definitely felt like there was a gap in the market for something um, and that's why I've kind of expanded into meeting the crew because even those kind of videos, I didn't. it's not just a cook's job, there's so many other roles here that you might think it's just ringers and cooks or whatever, but we've got about 12 to 15 different roles on the station that people can do. So. So how
8: many people do you cook
0: for? Yeah, about 45 people and then um, on a daily basis, yeah. Today I'm introducing you to Rochelle. Rochelle does heaps of jobs around the station, like shoeing horses, cleaning troughs and unloading trucks but today I spent the day with her so she could show me how she does the feeding. Was that a daunting task at the start, feeding for so many people? Yes, it definitely was. I think as time's of as time gone on, I've definitely got better with time management and little tips and tricks in the kitchen to help me um, save time. But no, when I first started, it, it was pretty overwhelming, but Um, I've definitely got into a routine now I tend to have like a two-week meal plan that I do I mean predominantly what I cook is um, I would say like 90 percent of the meals I make are beef so obviously we and we supply all our own beef here from the cattle station and so anything that gets left over from a dinner uh, will be turned so we'll put some leftovers in the fridge for the crew if they want to take it out for their lunch. Um, they can do that. But anything other than that will get turned into a smoko. So smoko is our 9:30 meal the next day, and it's. It, it, I think it's really good because it forces you out of your comfort zone a little bit. You're thinking you've got these leftovers that's already been a meal. What can I make it into uh, that's a bit different? And it really. And I really like the challenge sometimes of what can I repurpose this into. And today I'm sharing with you a recipe for donuts. Start by adding instant yeast, sugar, and warm milk to a bowl. Allow to rest for five minutes. Ellie, how many meals do you cook a day? So we do, so it's uh, the crew kind of have four meals. So I, I, they get a cooked meal three times a day. So they have breakfast, which is a cooked breakfast. They have smoko at 9.30, which is kind of a morning tea where we'll have cakes and slices and Pie, like baked pies. Um, today we had like fritters, a zucchini fritter. So that's that at 9.30. It's kind of like a, almost like an early lunch. And then at 12.30, um, they have their lunch, which is if they're out on the property, they'll pack a sandwich in the morning for them to take. Or if they're on the property, if they're on the in, at homestead. They can um, have leftovers or there's a big glass fridge in our uh, kitchen where people can help themselves to throughout the day. And then in the evening, their evening meal is at seven and uh, that's a cooked meal as well. What would you say to young people who are thinking about spending time on a station? Yeah, I would say go for it. I think you've got like, nothing to lose by taking the leap out there. I think something I've noticed on my TikTok is people asking about what kind of experience you need. And in a lot of cases out here, we're just looking for enthusiastic, hardworking people that are maybe ready to do something different. Yeah, I love it out here. I, I, the stories that I can tell my family are like nothing that they've ever heard before. And I think sometimes it's it feels like a world away because it's so remote, but um, the, it's like a big family here and there's always someone to have a chat to and you might be away from your actual family, but it's definitely like having another family out here.
1: That's NT Station Cook at Newcastle Waters and TikTok star Ellie Daybourne speaking to Alex Trelaw. And that's all we got time for on today's Country Hour. Keep it rural.